Now, I want to go over them all at once because if I share one by one, we talk about them one by one, it gets a little repetitive because, as you'll see, some of them are pretty linked, if okay. that makes sense. So, so first, in other words, George, be quiet until I'm done talking. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. See, message, you and I, message received. You and I have been on many long runs together, so I just know uh, your brain goes quiet. Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and a new sponsor that we'll be talking about here in just a few minutes. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. Happy late July 4th to everybody out there. Happy Peachtree Road Race Day to all the endurance athletes in Atlanta. Um, We both ran the Peachtree, of course. Patrick, how'd it go for you? Uh, had a blast. Um, t- to your point about you know saying Happy Fourth of July for me, it's almost Happy Peachtree Day more than anything else. <laughs> um, we, I usually don't do fireworks or anything of that nature, but it's all about the Peachtree on the Fourth of July here in Atlanta. Right on. So yeah, had a lot of fun. Uh, I tend to go into that race. I like to tell people that it's a parade more so than a race, so to mm-hmm. speak. You know, mm-hmm. you're you get a good chance to to meet people or to see people every year that. You know, for me at least, I see folks I ran with in high school. We just know we're going to run that race every year, so it's a chance to kind of see everybody. It's almost like a little mini reunion every year for different people I've run with in high school and college, and then since college, etc. Mm-hmm. So it was—it's always been a lot of fun. Right on, very good, very good. Yeah, the the PC Road Race. Um, I was joking with you this morning, and I've told several other people, it was the 50th Peachtree Road Race. So the 50th one they've had, the first one was 50 years ago. Um, and uh, they uh, put out special bonuses for course records, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about here in just a minute. Um, but I was thinking about my own experience with the Peachtree Road Race, and the first time that I ran the Peachtree Road Race was in the summer of 1990. Um, so that was the summer in between my 10th grade and 11th grade years in high school. Um, and I was thinking about it, and I've, I've run it 11 times now. Mm-hmm. I've run the Peachtree Road Race more than I've run any other single race, period. Um, and I was like, how is it that I've run the Peachtree Road Race 11 times, but yet I had these long stretches of like a decade where I didn't run it at all? And yeah. I was like, oh, wait, the reason why is because the first time I ran it was coming up on 30 years ago (laughs) right you know i've only run it on average about less than half of the year since i started running it um but yeah just it's it's been a part of my it's been a part of my my endurance running career since the beginning of my endurance running career literally yeah and to me it's great because it, it it's a very interesting event because it's very iconic right almost like a boston marathon or a new york city marathon for example but the barrier to entry for running the Peachtree is so much lower than most of the big yeah. iconic races, right? Mm-hmm. It's obviously, you could have a hard year and still pull out a 10K, oh, you yeah. know, or at least much easier than you could a marathon. Oh, yeah. So it's interesting that because the Peachtree, I noticed they, that the Atlanta Track Club was pulling people on stage and saying, you know, this person's run it 40 years, this person's run it 45 years, this person's mm-hmm. run it 25 years. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of people that have run it 40 years or more. Yeah. And it's because it's always here. You know, it's if you're in the Atlanta area, it's very accessible from a geographic perspective. I mean, obviously, traffic is rough, mm-hmm. but it's going to be like that for any major race. And it's a 10K mm-hmm. and a downhill 10K at that or a net downhill 10K at that. Um, so it, it's a pretty iconic race because you can kind of bring what you can to the race and still make it through. 
For sure. Yeah, the um, the original race, and it's already been talked about a great deal in many, many other places. It had 110 people, and they didn't have any traffic control or anything else like that. <laughs> right. And, uh, um, it was won by Gail Barron and Jeff Galloway, both of whom are pretty well known in the, the Atlanta running community. Um, and, and it's obviously grown now to 60,000 people. Um, the vast majority of those 60,000 people walk from the start to the finish. Um, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of people wear costumes, even though costumes are supposed to be form-fitting. You and I both saw some people at the starting line who definitely were not wearing form-fitting costumes. Yeah. They were dressed up as, as, as chickens and Mount Rushmore and the Constitution and all sorts of other things like that. Um, but um, but make no mistake, though, and this is something I'm always reminded of, and I was certainly reminded of this year, it is a very difficult race. Like, objectively, it's a difficult mm-hmm. race. The course is difficult. The weather, obviously, makes it very hard. Um, and and the logistics of it are difficult. I mean, you, you can't just kind of drive up and, you know, go to the Port of John and do your little warm-up and then just walk up to the starting line. Right. I mean, the logistics of having 60,000 people all together at that race, you have to kind of be able to pull that off, too. And it's point-to-point as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to, you know, get back to the starting line after you've gotten to the finish line. So, um so yeah, it it is a very difficult race. I actually had one of the a pretty tough race. I've been sick lately and a little bit out of shape and and all that sort of thing. So I ran it at roughly the same pace that I ran the Flying Pig Marathon, um, and that was not on purpose. That was just kind of where I am right now. Um, but uh, but and I was reminded of how difficult the race and how cruel the yeah. race can actually be. But got my little mug for top one thousand finishers, which is pretty cool. It has the uh, the fiftieth on there and and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and you mentioned something too that I think needs to be said. So, so first of all, I'll kind of build on your last point there. I have learned the Pete Sears race that if you try to force your way into a PR or a good race, the Pete Sears is going to win out. <laughs> yeah, you, the cardiac hill is going to be the wall that you hit, so to speak. Almost no matter how well you've trained. I mean, I've had training set cycles where I would spend months, you know, doing hill repeats trying to prep for the peach tree and it seemed like the peach tree still kind of had the last word so to speak <laughs> um so yeah it is it is definitely a race that is not easy if you're trying to pr or really kind of go for the gold so to speak yeah um but you know i one thing i wanted to point out too is you mentioned that you know roughly half or so or, or the majority will say of people who participate in the peach tree walk from start to finish mm-hmm. and i just want to say i think the atlanta track club does such a good job of setting up a race that allows p- people who are used to 10Ks can race it and enjoy the experience. I agree with you on that. But is very accessible to people who are new to the sport. And I, I think that, that is a very big reason why Atlanta is such has such a strong running community. I, I totally agree. Yeah, and, and I think that's super important. I mean, you know, the, my, my quintessential um, Peachtree Road Race experience was in 2014 where I ran from the front and I raced – and then I changed my shoes and I jogged back to the start. But I didn't jog back to the start on the course, mind you, because there are some people who do that, and I think that's a really obnoxious thing to do. But I jogged back to Buckhead via Piedmont Road instead um, and and then met my family who had started in the last corral and then walked down the course again with them. And so I essentially did the race twice, one from the front and one from the back on the same day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to your point, um, the people that I ran with at the front we're having a profoundly different peach tree experience than the people I walked with at the back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but they're both in the same race. They both get the same t-shirt and they, and they both get to have this July 4th peach tree road race experience. And, um, yeah, in, in a lot of ways it encapsulates the diversity 
that is endurance sports and, and running in particular. And, you know, it's a big tent, and I always like to say that, that there's there's space for a lot of different people in it, um, which I think is super cool. Um, let's talk about a couple other kind of quick aspects here of the Peachtree Road Race. Um, I know you want to talk about the T-shirt, and I want to talk about a couple other things, but um, the the uh, as I mentioned, the, the, P, uh, the Atlanta Track Club offered a bonus for anybody who set course records. And the course records are stout at the Peachtree Road Race. I mean, it's been an elite level race for, for several years. Um, and of the four races where that was offered, all four of them got course records. <laughs> um, and so the, <laughs> the Atlanta Track Club will now be doling out $200,000 in race bonuses. Um, Ronex Capruto won the men's race. He ran 2701, which blows my mind a little bit. Um, he broke Joseph Kamani's record for, of 2704 from 1996, which uh, at the time I was blown away that somebody ran that fast there. Um, and he goes out there, this 19-year-old, Ronex Caprudo is, uh, and runs 2701. It was not only um, a, a course record at the Peachtree Road Race, it's actually an all-comers record for the United States. It's the fastest that anybody has ever run in a Road 10K at any Road 10K in all of the United States. And it was at the Peachtree Road Race, which is not where you go to run your absolute fastest no yeah so so super impressive there uh bridget cosguy who we've talked about before on this podcast a couple of times uh she won chicago a couple years ago in such an impressive fashion she won london this year or not a couple years ago in 2018 um she won london this year uh in another super impressive fashion she hasn't lost a race in, in almost two years and well over a year um she ended up kicking to the finish and winning in 30 22 uh, and ends up uh, setting a women's course record there. Uh, Manuela Shar, who's won a few times at Peachtree, um, but people showed up. Manuela Shar ended up winning a kick to the line in the women's wheelchair race, uh, set a course record, $50,000 for her. And then Damo Romanchuk, um, who is uh, the two-time pass winner, he three-peated, um, and uh, he... Broke his broke his course record uh, broke the course record by a pretty significant margin about 20 seconds or so uh, in the men's wheelchair race and so yeah it was interesting both the the men's foot races both feature the the men's foot race and the men's wheelchair race featured somebody just running away from the crowd just just dropping everybody and the women's races both came down to a kick between three people um, both the the wheelchair race and the foot race mm-hmm. um, so yeah. Congrats to those folks, man! Super impressive, yeah. and and kudos to the uh, to the to the Land Track Club for kind of putting that out there. Um, particularly in the wheelchair races, by the way, um, it's rare but awesome that that they'll offer the same bonuses in the wheelchair race that they offer in the uh, in the foot race. Um, and between the the money that Manuela Shar and Donna Romanchuk made for the win and the fifty thousand dollar bonus. It's believed that that was probably the biggest single payday that a wheelchair racer has ever gotten in any race ever. So, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't even know how to react other than one. Yeah. When I saw the finish for the women's race, I was heartbroken for the poor woman that finished second. Because, right. um, as you know, that final downhill half mile, every time I turn that corner, I just start cursing. <laughs> I know I at least start cursing in my own head, like, this is a long, fast finish here. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that finish takes a long time to arrive. It takes a long time to yeah. arrive. It's also one of those things where I feel like I don't see the finish, and then all of a sudden it's just there. Yeah. Like, it just is like, you know, this Carcosa or imaginary place that I know is close, but then doesn't arrive until all of a sudden I'm crossing. Um, but, uh, you know, it, to me it shows, you know, just a basic, you know, uh, 
proof of sports, and that is, you know, when when you bring money or when you have money, people show up or the best show up, and they show up in a very real way. Yeah, you see that in all sports. Yeah, and you know, a big reason the Atlanta Track Club is able to offer prizes like that is this has become such a big event. Mm-hmm. There are so many people that are paying the fee. Mm-hmm you know, paying the membership to mm-hmm. run this race. Yeah. And I love that we're able to kind of reinvest that a little bit into the top of the field without sacrificing kind of the, the experience of the many people that mm-hmm. do get to attend because it does offer a little bit of a, you know, legitimization of the um, prestige of the race. And it also gives family members who are watching something to see before their family member comes in. Absolutely. You know, like, you know, my family always comes out, like my mom, my sister, my dad, and they watch. Mm-hmm. And so they have to be at the starting line or at the finish line about the time, you know, about the time I'm starting the race or so to kind of get their place, mm-hmm. and it gives them something to, to kind of yeah, watch and appreciate um, in a way that maybe they don't get to right. because they're not track and field fans, they're not watching right. NBC Sports the way you and I are. Right. Um, so, anyways, that was kind of my my big takeaway, and you know, it has me looking forward to next year. Absolutely. Yeah, super fun to watch, um, and and really enjoyed that. Um, a couple other kind of quick things to say. One is the the I mentioned the the jump here that we're going to have a new sponsor over the course of the next couple of weeks, and that new sponsor is is called SlayRx, um, and some of y'all might be familiar with it. SlayRx is a, a custom drink manufacturer, and I interviewed all of them uh, just a couple days ago, and the interview is going to be coming out next week on uh, June July fourteenth on Bastille Day, um, and uh, we're going to be talking to them about what it is that they do. Um, some of y'all might have seen them actually posted up at the Peachtree Road Race. Um, mm-hmm. They had a tent out there right <laughs> halfway up Heartbreak Hill. It was like the, the perfect spot there, right around the 5K mark, just before the <laughs> Shepherd Center. Want a um, little water right now? Or a yeah, little exactly. uh, fluids? Like, little Slayer X, exactly. Yeah. Um, they said they passed out 2,000 cups of Slayer X there. Um, and, uh, and then in addition, they were in the Peachtree Road Race virtual race bag. Um, and so they had a flyer in there and, and you can get all their information in there. And there's a, um, a discount code that, that came along with that as well too. So, so check that out. But like I said, we'll be talking a little bit more about them next week and the week after as they, as they're, we're really onboarding them as one of our new sponsors here. Um, but, but yeah, be sure to check that out. And then tell us about the t-shirt, man. That's a pretty cool story as well. So the biggest, yeah, to me, my favorite story really from Peachtree was that this is the 50th Peachtree, and um, Tina Tate, who we've had on this podcast and is kind of a, a friend of you and I and um, is someone I've known for a while and is a really kind of integral part of the running community here in Atlanta, was uh, the designer of the, this year's Peachtree Road Race t-shirt. Right on. It was kind of a stressful uh, competition for her because I know she is in graphic design. She's very creative. I believe she designed the 2015 or 2016 t-shirt for Peachtree. I can't remember which one. Mm-hmm. And she actually is turning 50 this year. Mm-hmm. So she's the same age as the Peachtree. So yeah. she wanted, she's a, she said, it's always been my goal to design the t-shirt for the 50th Peachtree Road Race. That's just been kind of a a long kind of passion project or, or, or milestone that she's held in her life. And so she, she, cool. de- she designed the shirt and or she she made her design you know people voted on what was their favorite design and then ultimately it was her design that was on the t-shirt so that was pretty cool um you can go back and listen to our podcast with tina or our episode with tina from about a year or so ago yeah it's about 15 where she talked about her journey from being a non-runner to being a runner and to now even being a volunteer coach with the atlanta track club and really being someone that a lot of people look to 
for inspiration and guidance in the running community. So, and the Peachtree Road Race played a really prominent role in her development. Correct. It was it was initially one of her her big inspirations to to get off the couch and to lose a lot of weight and all that sort of thing. And so so yeah, to me it feels very appropriate um, that that somebody for whom the Peachtree Road Race has been so important actually ended up being the person who designed the shirt. Um, and there's more to the story too because. She designed the shirt, but the shirt was submitted by a charity, and so because that shirt was chosen, it means a certain amount of money is going to be going to that charity. Um, that's and, correct. And so I, I think I think that's pretty cool too. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, maybe we can uh, have a short conversation with her sometime over the course of the next few weeks, and 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 broadcast that for all of y'all. But yeah, I was super psyched to see that for her. Yeah, pumped. I mean, she is exactly the kind of person that the Peachtree Road Race is for. It is in it somebody in Atlanta. Um, someone who, you know, maybe doesn't have a running background, mm-hmm. but then it can help, you know, provide some inspiration and some motivation and some structure to help kind of draw people into the running community right on. and show people like how great this sport can be. Cause it's kind of a weird, you know, argument to make to folks say, Hey, you should start running for now on and wake up early <laughs> and, you know, make yourself tired all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you need something like a Peachtree Road Race with, that has such great support from the community, from the Atlanta Track Club, et cetera, to bring people into the sport. So I, I thought it was just such a cool story. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I used to be a little bit more standoffish towards the Peachtree Road Race than I am now. And that's one of the reasons why I have these long stretches in my in my life when I didn't run it. Um, because I used to kind of resent the fact that, that it sucked up a lot of the air in the room, frankly, mm-hmm. um, and when it came to endurance sports. And and. I have a much better relationship with it now <laughs> mm-hmm. because I do appreciate what it does for the community at large mm-hmm. um, and that, that, that it is something that I think is an overall force for good. So. Yeah, and I always tell the story that, so I, I remember just in high school, obviously in high school I was running every day, um, you know, and now I was the lifeguard at our local pool and I remember on July 4th I would go to the pool and all of a sudden all like 100 people wanted to ask me, yeah. <laughs> if I'd ever run a 10K, have I done the yeah. Peachtree? What was my Peachtree time? And all of a sudden, they understood it, right? All of a sudden, they were asking questions like, you could run all six miles without stopping. <laughs> like, they were starting to kind of put the pieces together and get an idea of, like, why I was so passionate about this sport and why I had to work so hard right? and, and that kind of a thing. And so that that's what made it so interesting. See, and that's, and that's the positive interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. The, the negative interpretation I had it for years and years is that, that I would be doing all this running and competing in all these races, and people would be like, oh, are you going to run the Peachtree? And right. I was, like, I was like, well, no, there's other races out there. And that's, that's what I mean when I say it sucked up the right. oxygen in the room. Like I said, I have, I have a better relationship for it now, and I tend to, to interpret it in a more positive way. Um, and I tend to be a little bit less self-centered about my running as well now, too. <laughs> so that, that, that as well. With age comes wisdom, exactly, I guess. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Well, um, we do want to kind of move on here. Um, we're talking about, by the way, our, our, our topic this week, we're, we're talking about news, but the, the thing that kind of unifies all of it is sort of talking about the state of the sport here a little bit. And so this is not like a news and research podcast or news and research week here, but just kind of talking about sort of where we are here in July of 2019 in the sport. And so we have kind of a few pieces of news and, and, and one piece of research that kind of uh, can be united under that umbrella. But we do want to move on because the World Cup final is today between the United States and Netherlands. And, 
we we know that we want to watch that. So. That's right. And the, the, the team time trial in Tour de France, stage two, is today, too. So let's talk about that real quick. Tour de France started yesterday. Mm-hmm. I know you've been anxiously waiting to start, Patrick. Um, this also means the return of everybody's favorite segment, i.e. the Patrick Ollinger question about the Tour de France, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, at a messy, real messy opening sprint stage yesterday, it was won by a guy named Mike Tornison, who is from the Netherlands. Hopefully that's not a harbinger of how sporting things are going to go here. But um, second place was a guy named Peter. Peter Sagan. Um, Peter Sagan's probably one of the most dominant cyclists of, uh, of this generation of cyclists. He's going for a seventh green jersey. Um, he finished second in the stage yesterday. He's had 11 wins over the course of the past several years of stages, and then he finished 20. He's had 22 uh, second place finishes, including yesterday. Uh, but anyway, um, the race this year started in Brussels. Um, it started in Belgium. Um, and it's in honor of the 50th anniversary of the first win of Eddie Merckx. Um, okay. Eddie Merckx is considered to be the greatest cyclist of all time. Greatest cyclist of all time. Um, he won the Tour de France five times, but he won pretty much everything else as well. Um, he won both of the other Grand Tours. He won just about every single one-day race and most like shorter uh, uh, week-long tours and all that sort of thing. So um, he has about 500 career wins. Um, which is just mind-blowing. Um, but five of those career wins include uh, wins at the, uh, the the Tour de France, and he spent uh, a record of 96 days uh, wearing the yellow jersey, um, which is a lot of time spent in the yellow jersey. Um, it's more time than anybody else. Um, so it started in Belgium, and yesterday's stage and today's stage are in Belgium in honor of Eddie Merckx, the 50th anniversary of his first win. Um, sort of a different type of course this year, really mountainous course, very high elevation tour this year. Um there's very little time trialing this year, um, and so that kind of favors certain types of riders. Um, and then most notably, though, when you think about who the favorites are this year in the Tour de France, there's like 15 different people that could potentially win this race. There's definitely 15 different people that could finish in the top three, that could finish on the podium. Um, last year's winner was a guy named Geraint Thomas, and we talked about that. He was from Team Sky. Um he was on the same team as Chris Froome, who has won four times. Um, and that team, Team Sky, has won six out of the last seven Tours de France. Uh, they've won every year except for one since 2012. Um, and they've done it with three different guys. It's not like it's just one guy that's just awesome on that team. They've done it with three different guys. Okay. Um, and so Team Sky has now been renamed. They've been bought out by Enios, which is now it's another team, Enios. Enios is the same... Uh, British Petroleum Company that's sponsoring the sub two effort by Elliot Kipchoge this fall. Um, really? So, which you might what? have seen, they've announced a venue for that. It's going to be in Belgium as well. What um, is their motivation to? to so have I don't know, sports? but they're they're definitely going all in on endurance sports. Right all right, now. and so wait, what what kind of company are they? You said so, so petroleum. Uh, yeah, oil. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so it's, it'd be like it'd be like if, if Shell Oil or, or Exxon or something like that just decided they wanted to, to get totally into American endurance sports. Um, that's what Enios is doing right now. Like to me, that's fascinating because I mean, endurance sports are all about how can I efficiently use the energy storage I have, <laughs> right? Like, and then this is an oil company which yeah. is used to fuel cars, but then I don't know how that connects from an advertising perspective. Yeah, I don't know. So I, I am sure that there's a big blitz about it over there, but but yeah, I don't know exactly where they're doing it. But but what happens in, in sports is that, that um, or in cycling, is that um, you have a license and a, a license team, and then they change their name based on who their primary sponsor is. Right. And so Sky, which is a broadcasting company um, in, in Great Britain, has been that that team for the last 
10 years roughly. Um, and then Sky just said, okay, we're done giving millions of dollars. You know, we've kind of gotten our, our full, full return on investment here. Um, so they search around for another sponsor, and Enio says, okay, we'll give you millions of dollars a year um, to, to do everything that you need to do in order to, to pull off this cycling thing. Um, and so now they're Team Enios. But it's the same team. It's the same riders. They just have different names on their jerseys. Um, the only thing I can think of is I remember in the 70s, or I remember reading about how in the 70s, Virginia Slim sponsored the <laughs> um, women's tennis tournament because yeah. they couldn't broadcast any television ads or i can't even, i believe they couldn't have any print ads either so it was kind of their only real avenue to get advertisement out there is to sponsor like nascar drivers and tennis players okay they could do print ads but yeah they can't do they can't do television commercials and that's so I, still true well i wonder if, the, yeah. if there's some angle like that with any of but surely not worth worth, worth looking into yeah, yeah i hadn't i hadn't totally thought about like why would they be doing it until you mentioned it just because i don't tend to think about the business end of the sport all that much but right. yeah um, so anyway, uh, Team Enios, um, the favorite, probably the single biggest favorite to win is actually on that team. It's not Chris Froome, who's won four times, because he crashed about a month ago and broke like every bone in his body. Um, really? He, he, he crashed, like he had a super high-speed crash, and he, he broke some ribs. He broke his, I think he broke his elbow. He broke his humerus. Um, he had a compound fracture to his femur. Um, what? And so, yeah. Um, and he was bleeding all over the road. I mean, it was disgusting. And so, um, so yeah, he he's actually pro- likely out for the rest of the year. And and there's questions about how how well he's even going to be able to return. Period to cycling, like what he's going to be when he comes back. Okay, let me yeah. just clarify. He is not racing the Tour de France. No, no, thank yeah, God. No, no, okay. that was like a month ago that happened. And so, so, um, so he's he's still very much on crutches and hobbling around um last year's winner garant thomas uh he's in the tour has that super strong team at Enios, but but has not had a really good year so far um and probably the the biggest five-star favorite is also from that team tim Enios, and it's a colombian guy named egan bernal but he's this brilliant climber he grew up at elevation and so when you have this super high elevation tour that's probably going to benefit him but He's only ever finished one Grand Tour, and he didn't finish as a team leader. He finished it as a helper. So even like the big favorites, like there's some questions around him, around them. So it should be a really exciting tour because we don't really know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And 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 unlike so many tours, tours de France and other races, you tend to kind of know what's going to happen. This right. one, especially with Lance really Armstrong. Know. So yeah, I mean you you tend to have these 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 juggernauts and, and even with with Chris Froome's been that way over the course of the last several years. Um, last year was a big surprise with Garon Thomas winning, but but this year Froome's not there. Thomas doesn't look all that sharp. Bernal seems to be good, but we'll see. Um, and then there's 15 other people, including other past champions that are in the race as well. So mm-hmm. so yeah, we'll see. Um, so yeah, excited about that. We'll update everybody on it when we uh, when we check back in. Because since today's only the second day of the tour, um, yesterday was messy but but exciting, um, and uh, and we'll look forward to seeing what happens uh, moving forward. All right, Patrick, what's your Tour de France question of the day? All right, my Tour de France question is um, so we talked about how there's not really much of a favorite, right? right. And, and right. when looking at a lot of different sporting events, you usually have the favorite. Mm-hmm. And then you have kind of the, the sleeper pick, right? Or the, the okay. people's choice, so to okay. speak. Someone that has an interesting story, okay. right? You know, for, for some reason, whether it be, or for any reason, right? I don't even need to name, name examples. So who is your, you know, rider that you are pretty sure they're not going to win? You're 99% sure they're not going <laughs> to win, but you're going to be paying close attention to them because they're interesting, whether it be they're, they're young and up and coming, or they just have an interesting comeback story, 
or they have an interesting backstory, oh, yeah. like maybe they came from a different sport, something like that. I'll give you a good one, and this is one that actually you, Patrick, will appreciate. Okay. Um, so, so again, teams are named after who their primary sponsors are. Okay. And there's a team that actually their license is held by an American, and so so it's it's an American team, if you will. It's based in the United States. Um, they used to be called Slipstream, and then they were sponsored by Chipotle for a while, and then they were sponsored by Garmin for a while. Now they're sponsored by Education First and Draypack. Um, and so, go ahead. What were you gonna say? What the heck is Draypack? I don't know what Draypack is actually. It's funny, like this happens in cycling all the time. You like know the team names, but you don't know like what they do. Like one of the most dominant teams this year so far is called Quick Step. Do you know who Quick Step is? And they've been a sponsor for years and years and years. I mean, it makes they, me think of Quick Trip. But... They manufacture floors. Huh. Right. Yeah, and now they're Dakunic Quick Step, and I don't know what Dakunic is. But anyway, um, so so Education First though is a company that's kind of like um, like Leapfrog. Okay. They make they make educational products and all that sort of thing. So again, the business in why would they want to sponsor a cycling team? I don't know, but they are. Um, so EF Draypack Education First Draypack has a rider that's a Canadian rider. It's a guy named Michael Woods, um, and I think he's sort of interesting. Uh, he's he like I said, he's from Canada. He started out as a runner, um, and he I like him already, <laughs> and he. Um, uh, was a 1,500-meter runner, and he actually was one of the best 1,500-meter runners in Canada. Um, better than Malcolm um, Gladwell? So better than Malcolm Gladwell um, in the early 2000s. Um, and he was actually ranked in the top 50 in the world at one point. Um, went to the University of Michigan, um, had a successful career there. Was he in the book Sub 4 with Alan Webb? So um, I don't know. But he was right around the same time, as a matter of yeah. fact. Yeah, I mean, so it was early so he, 2000s. So he had Mark Wetmore as a coach at Michigan. So no, he had Mark Wetmore as a Colorado. Um, Who? So so Kevin Sullivan was the is the the assistant coach there that that's probably who you're thinking of yeah and so who's also canadian and also a 1500 meter runner um who worked with uh with with alan webb as well so yeah i didn't even think about the fact that he was a contemporary of alan webb so they were there right about the same time um and he like so many of us um came out of college and kept getting injured and he had this like a stress fracture in his foot and he basically kept overtraining and training too hard and so he spent a lot of time on the bike um trying to get in shape uh or trying to stay in shape right and so eventually his then girlfriend now wife says why don't you try being a cyclist instead <laughs> and he's like all right um and cycling and running i can tell you as somebody who has been a runner and then was a cyclist and now is a runner again they're not the same um like what you need to do in order to be a good runner is not the same that you need to be a good cyclist um you know you need a good engine but but they're two really different sports and so it took him a while um, but eventually, over time, he transitioned into becoming a pro cyclist and then ultimately was able to get a contract at the highest levels of the sport. Um, and last year, actually won a stage in the, in the, 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 the Vuelta a España, the, the Tour of Spain, the Grand Tour there. Um, so he didn't know until like literally last week that he was going to be in the Tour de France because there was a lot of shakeups on the team and injuries and people who can compete and all that sort of thing. Um, so he's there now. Um, and I'll be really interested to see how he does and hoping that he'll be able to pull off a stage win there. So, so yeah, uh, somebody who successfully made the transition from being a, a professional runner or a semi-professional runner, good enough to be a professional runner, but was injured and instead went the, the route of professional cycling instead. So we'll see how he does. We'll see how he does. Yeah, very interesting. Wow, I really like that story. All right, so many things stand out. One, I love that the, the fiancé was the one that came up with the brilliant <laughs> idea. Right. Um. I've come to find it's doing best to listen to them on, that, on <laughs> things like that. Uh, and and actually, and, and just on that note, 
I agree with you, but it's not the whole oh women know best like cliche thing. It's it's because that's somebody who's super close to you, that's invested in you, that cares about you, but that can see things in a in a way that you might not be able they to They don't see have that. the same tunnel vision you do. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um so my, my wife is is I always like whenever I'm thinking about a goal, I'll mention it to my wife and she'll be like, Yeah, I don't much like that idea and I'm like, Yeah, okay, you're probably right. Right. I didn't think of that <laughs> angle. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the way I meant it was almost yeah. like a personal advisor. I don't know how to quite say it, but yeah. I love that story. I love the fact that he was good enough to run at Michigan. Here's another question I have for you that's kind of off the cuff. If you had to pick which running event translates best to cycling, oh, good question. what do you think it would be? Because when you said 1,500 meters, I was like, that might be the best one. Yeah. Because... That's an excellent question. Like actually. 10K and above, I think that's... You're too lightweight. You I don't agree. have enough muscular power. You're not... I agree generating a lot of force when you're yeah. i mean you, you are generating more than people realize yeah but it's not the same as a 1500 meter well, runner and, where and you're really having to generate a lot of power with each i stride. totally agree with you and cycling in fact um and and cycling's different bike racing is different from what people think mm-hmm. because bike racing involves basically going at a really really easy zone one level until it's time to go really 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 hard and so it's almost like if you were to do, imagine doing a half marathon and you basically run two miles of the half marathon, not even two miles, four miles, five miles of the half marathon at like a jog, like a walking pace almost. And then you have to run the sixth mile as hard as you possibly can. And then you have to settle into like a tempo pace for mile seven, eight, and nine. And then you jog mile 10 and 11. And then you run the last two miles as hard as you possibly can. That's how cycling works. Um, it's like sprinting and walking. Yeah. Um, and so, yes. so, so yeah, you need those really, really, really high muscular power and that really high VO2 max that you tend to find in the shorter events. Um, there was another runner um, who had a similar story, but he wasn't quite as good as, as Michael Woods is from the United States named Matthew Boucher. Um, and he was, a, he was an 800 guy. Um, same sort of thing. So, yeah, I would say 800, 1500 meters. That's what you're looking at. Right, 5K um, max. Yeah. That's kind of the highest. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and But because cycling races, particularly at the highest level, tend to be 200 to 250 kilometers, so 120 to 150 miles, that's you know a long, long time to be out there on your bike. And so the, there's a lot of training, a lot of time needs to be spent in order to make those translations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but so, yeah. with that said, you know it's interesting. A, a fifteen hundred meter runner runs about as many miles as a marathoner. Right. right. So it, it's kind of it's just a different skill set mm-hmm. or a different output from what's a lot of the same training. I shouldn't say a lot of the same training, but a lot of the same volume of training. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. So so yeah, that's a good question and one I've only thought about a little bit before. But yeah, I would say it's those it's those uh, middle distance races. I would say eight hundred, particularly fifteen hundred. I would say because. Right. Um, but you, but you have to be one of those people who's more inclined towards distances. So, you know, there's people who like do 200, 400, 800, they like step up to the 800. Right. Um, and then there's people who, who, who step down to the 800, like 800, 1500 meter runners. Right. Um, and it would be an 800, 1500 person. Yeah. yeah I think th- those would be the best people. And Michael Woods, like we said, was one of those guys. A- absolutely um, fascinating stuff all right you have right me convinced on. that's my favorite racer in the tour de france i'm gonna be i'll, I'll be sure to update adding, on how he does yeah i'm gonna be kind of adding him to the tracker so to speak and right on, right on. um just, just what an interesting story i always love when people translate sports mm-hmm. in any sport from soccer to baseball or whatever right it's on. just interesting stuff right i also want to add one quick clarification i know i said coach wetmore was at university of michigan it was coach warhurst okay yeah Rod that's warhurst. who it was i yeah yeah um that's right. so he was 
I mean, he was a blue chip coach. He was oh, yeah. he was yeah. someone you went yeah. to well University of Michigan to to run under him because right. he's very smart. He's he's in that top class of coaches. Right. Yeah. For sure. Very good. I'm glad you uh, looked that up and, and and mentioned it. Very good. Um, what else are we talking about? What's next? We're going to talk about Kona next. Yes, Kona. All right. So another kind of quick piece of news here that that some of you might have seen um, is that they changed the the start times um, at the Ironman World Championships in October uh, in Kailua, Kona, Hawaii. Um, now, side note, real quick. There's always a title sponsor of the Ironman World Championships. You know, Ford was it for a long time. Then GoPro was for a couple of years. Um, uh, this year, the title sponsor of the Ironman World Championships is Vega Protein. Did you know that Vega was that big? I don't even know what Vega is. So Vega is a a it's a it's a plant based protein, um, and they make protein products like you know whey protein and things and and bars and stuff like that. Okay. Um, and it's actually owned by um, a, a pro triathlete, a former pro triathlete. Um, but I always kind of thought they were sort of niche, and I had no idea that they were had become a big enough company that they could be the title sponsor of the Ironman World Championships. But they have. So yeah. anyway, so the Vega Ironman World Championships, which are in the mid-October coming up here pretty soon, um, they changed this year to a full-blown wave start. Um, Several years ago, a decade ago, they, they separated out the pro starts from the, the age group starts. Um, and so they would have a pro men start, and that would be you know 50 people. And they have pro women start, and that would be 30 people. Um, and then they would start all 1,800, 1,900 age groupers all at the same time. And it was this big, massive start altogether and gave brilliant overhead shots, uh, right? Um, then in 2014, they decided to separate the men and women in the age groupers as well. And so they started the, the age group women 10 minutes behind the age group men. Um, and then this year they've actually announced that, that it's going to be a full-blown wave start. So you're going to have pro men, then pro women, then all the way on down. And I'll talk about what the specific ones are here in just a minute. The reason why is because in Kona, unlike in other races, pretty much everybody swims pretty fast. Um, and so... 90% of the field is getting out of the water between 65 minutes and one hour and 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that means that, that you have 1,600, 1,700 people all coming into transition and then running out onto, or going out onto the bike course all at the same time. Um, and that causes all kinds of traffic and all kinds of drafting infractions and just all kind of craziness in the first half of the bike course. Um, and so... A lot of people make the mistake of thinking it's because there's not enough room on the pier. Um, but no, that's not it. The, the problem is that everybody goes out onto the bike course at the same time. There's not enough room on the bike course. Um, and so what they've done is they've said, okay, at 625, we're going to start the pro men. At 630, we're going to start the pro women. At 635 is when we're going to start the uh, physically challenged open and hand cycle groups. At 655 is men 18 to 39. Um, now, get this. 7 o'clock is men 40 to 44. Okay. That one age group is so large, they have their own start wave. That's fascinating. 705 is men 45 to 49. That age group is so large, they have their own start wave. Um, so men 40 to 44 and men 45 to 49, basically, you know, there's what? One, two, or, or one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight age group start waves. 
uh, and they each have their own. Men 50 plus are 710. Um, females 18 to 39 are 715. Females uh, 40 to 54 are 720. Uh, females 55 and plus are 725. And legacy athletes, those who got in by doing 12 Ironman branded races, completing 12 Ironman branded races, are starting last at 730. Um, so, yeah, um, kind of incredible, actually, um, that, uh, that they are, are going to a full-blown wave start here. Um, but kind of, a, again, the thing that's uniting all these stories we're talking about today, kind of a sign of the times here. Um, definitely will make things harder on those, those women over the age of 55 and those legacy athletes. Um, they won't have as many people to swim with, frankly, and that'll make it definitely harder for them. Yeah. Um, and so, so we'll see. It also means that they actually slightly changed the finishing limits. It used to be that everybody who did 17 hours and was able to finish before midnight was called a finisher. Um, Now, because there's such a wide range of starting times, you have some people who are going to finish after midnight that will still be called a finisher, and some people who are going to be finishing before midnight that won't be called a finisher. Um, And so it's all about the the, the 17-hour uh, uh, limit instead. So, um, so yeah, kind of a pretty big change actually there, um, in the Ironman world championship. And I think that, that folks outside of Ironman might not recognize what a big change that is, but it actually is a pretty profound change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll, I'll be looking forward to seeing how it goes and hopefully, hopefully of course it will go well and it won't too profoundly affect the, 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 the nature of the age group race there. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Interesting stuff. I mean, it's, the sport just continues to get bigger and bigger and they need to keep adjusting, Mm-hmm. you know and logistics. it gets continually more competitive too right like if 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 it, if if Kona was a regular ironman and 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 people were spread out on the swim the way they are at every other race mm-hmm. um at most other races not every other race but most other races they wouldn't have to make this change but because there's so many really qualified fast people that go to Kona they all get out of the water at the same time and and <laughs> And, and so they have to kind of institute this change. Um, so it's, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting. Very good. All right. Uh, next is what you're going to talk about, right? Yeah. Um, state of running. This was a uh, kind of, you know, really, we teased this a few weeks ago, and this was an article that, or a report that was sent to me by a, a fellow uh, you know, ITL athlete and runner, and, and Jonathan Burke. And he texted to me. He's like, hey, I thought you guys would find this interesting. And it, it was a pretty fascinating study. So the IAAF Global Running Conference was held May 31st in China, and at the conference there were you know hundreds of delegates, de- delegates, delegates, um, you know very similar to most academic conferences where you people are coming and bringing their research and presenting it to other SMEs within the industry, and it's just kind of a big knowledge sharing event. And uh, there was one report that was published by Jens Jacob Anderson. Um, it was a pretty thorough report provided by the or for the IAAF um, in cooperation with runrepeat.com. And what he tried to do was take on the task of, you know, looking at a bunch of different um, race results, 107.9 million race results to be more exact, and come up with some conclusions based on the results around what does the state of running look like around the world? Are we running? Do we have more runners? Do we have more runners by certain age groups, certain genders? How fast are we running? That kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty big report. Um, and the data set covers 96% of U.S. race results, 91% of the race results from the EU, Canada, and Australia, and a slightly smaller sample from Asia, Africa, and South America. 
Um, so it was a pretty big and comprehensive report and probably the biggest report that I know of in terms of what does this sport look like as a whole. And so I just want to talk right about on. some of the conclusions that we found or some of the uh, conclusions we could come to based on some of the numbers in the in the report because it's pretty fascinating stuff we talk about all the time like we talked about today at Peachtree about how this is a sport that's changing it is one that's not uh narrowly focused it's not like you know an an NBA where it's like there's only so many teams or an NFL where there's so many teams and so many participants each year Mm -hmm. it's something that is very open to expansion Mm -hmm. and it's a sport where you can continue playing for a very long time right on you know as opposed to you know more of your fast twitch sports where it's a bit hard to participate after age 30 or so. Mm-hmm. So I want to go over a few key conclusions that were made from the report. Now, I want to go over them all at once because if I share one one by one, we talk about them one by one, it gets a little repetitive because, as you'll see, some of them are pretty linked, if okay. that makes sense. So, so first, in other words, George, be quiet until I'm done talking. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. See, message, you and I, message received. You and I have been on many long runs together, so I just know uh, your brain goes quick. So I got, I got to get it in before. <laughs> got it. Before uh, you I start you going off. Uh, I love you, buddy. All right. First and foremost, so key conclusion number one: event participation has declined by thirteen percent since two thousand sixteen, when it peaked with nine point one million runners crossing the finish line. Growth does continue in Asia. But there has been a slight decline since 2016. However, I do want to also point out there has been an explosive growth since the early 90s. And so this is almost like the stock market having a 2% dip in a year okay. after a 25-year bull market, right? So, it, it, I mean, we're, we're dipping down below the levels that we're seeing in like 2015 okay. you know, from the peak in 2016. Okay, number two, runners have never been slower Male runners in particular. In, ni- <laughs> in 1986, the average finish time was 3.52 for the marathon, whereas today it's 4.32. Hmm. So that's a slowdown of about 40 minutes and 14 seconds. Number three, runners have never been older. Wait, okay, back it up. Just And I'm not asking a question, making a comment. Mm-hmm. I just want to clarify what you just said. When was that peak, 3.52? When was that? 1986. Okay, keep going. And keep in mind how that plays in conjunction to that key conclusion number one, where that was well before the explosive growth. Right, right. Number three, runners have never been older. The average age has jumped from 35 years old in 1986 to 39 years old in 2018. That is especially important when you think about the fact that you young people are not going to bring down the average very much, right? Like, what's the youngest marathoner going to be, 17, 18? Yeah. You know? So... Those four years of increased age, that's pretty significant when you think about it. Yeah. Okay. Number four. Spain has the fastest recreational runners on the marathon <laughs> distance. Russia on the half marathon. Switzerland. Russia? This is hilarious. Switzerland on the 10K. What? Ukraine on the 5K. Ukraine? What? Okay. I, okay. I, I, I have a theory okay. about this. I, I have a theory too, but keep going. Okay. For the first time, number five, for the first time in history... There are more female runners than male runners. In right 2008, 50.2% of runners were female. Right on. Okay. Number six, traveling to races has never been more popular than it is today okay. by a very wide margin. Like in the 80s, there was very little travel to races. Right on. Um, number seven, and this is the most interesting to me, the motives for participating in running are potentially changing from being achievement-focused to being psychological, health, and socially focused. 
which in part can be proved by more people traveling to races, slower finish times, yeah, I was say, that links back. and how milestone ages now are much less dominant than 15 to 30 years ago. Yeah. So instead of saying, hey, I'm 30 now, I want to do a marathon to have like a midlife crisis or quarter life crisis, mm-hmm. now it's much more, hey, my friend's doing it, I want to do it too. So those are my those are my kind of seven key conclusions I wanted to yeah, those are good ones. Um, hone in on. We don't have to attack them one by one, but let's just talk about some of our thoughts from some of those key conclusions, and I can even kind of scroll back through the report and yeah, I was gonna say as we kind of think of different um, conclusions, I can get a bit more detail oriented. Yeah, see, this is the this is the drawback of me having to be quiet for all seven. Now I have to like reflect on all seven at the same time here. Um, so I guess the 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 first one. Um, that stands out to me, and why, why don't we just go ahead and agree that we're just going to throw away the one about the dip in participation numbers, right? Yeah, that's a little like I remember in twenty like sixteen when people were like, "Oh, the NFL numbers are down," and it's like, "Yeah, but they're still quadruple the second biggest television right. event in the world." Right, so right. get yeah, over it. So, so, so I think <laughs> we can throw that, out. and and we and we can kind of continue to look at okay, there's still a whole lot of people that are doing it, and they're, and there's still it's still on on a growth trajectory if you look at the past 20 years or this is 30 years 30 plus years so um and so so it's still very much on a growth trajectory and i I think we see that i mean you know the peachy road race which we started off talking about has gotten bigger um um, i do think it's um interesting I, i think there's definitely a link between the fact that it's gotten more social or that people are more motivated by social stuff and it's gotten slower and it's gotten older i think all three of those things kind of go together yeah um or at least there there's there's some overlap there um, I mean, obviously, older folks tend to be a little bit slower, um, and I'm putting myself in that category. Um, and and then um, if you're if you're motivated more by um, more by you know going out there and and experiencing the the social aspect of it and and communing with with other runners, which I have no problem with, then you are running the absolute fastest you can run. Then of course you know you're probably going to run a little bit slower, um, and and that's fine. Um, and so so that that to me is not a surprise at all. Um, let's talk about the the fastest and 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 again that kind of dovetails into the fastest places where those were i my theory and i'm interested to hear yours my theory about it was ukraine was the fastest 5k's and russia was the fastest half marathons Mm -hmm. my my theory about that is that there are fewer participant runners in ukraine doing 5k's that was exactly my thought and so so my guess is that the only people showing up to do 5k's in ukraine are people who are trying to run fast um and so i mean you, you you we could cross reference some data to try and figure that out but i would say the same thing with with russia that that you probably have the only people showing up to do a half marathon in Russia are are showing up to actually try and run hard and run fast. They're not showing up for social purposes. They're not showing up to to, um, to, to I mean stay in shape or anything else like that. They're trying to compete, um, and right. so or at least run the best that they possibly can. So so that that's my theory about that. Yeah, you're not taking a finish line selfie in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> I would. Um, <laughs> That was that was so that was my thinking exactly, and that's kind of my thinking generally for a lot of these takeaways. It's yeah. not that ru- individual runners are getting slower so much as more people are doing it, and when you yeah. increase the net or you increase the tent, yeah. you're gonna get a, more of the middle of the bell curve, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a great uh, and, I, and, so, and and again, I think it's important to say I don't have a problem with that. I think that's a good thing. I want that. Yeah, I want. To me, the world is a better place if everybody's a runner. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right like to, to be incredibly generalist. If I had to choose more, yeah. world better with more or less runners, I say more runners. Yeah. Um, there was a great kind of illustration of this 
um, kind of principle by Nassim Tlaib, who wrote The Black Swan and mm. um, Anti-Fragility and uh, Fooled by Randomness. Okay. For, for, he's, a, he's a big author, big kind of um, intellectual thinker. Mm-hmm. He talked about how if you, you take a bunch of like rats, for example, and you blast them with UV rays and essentially give them cancer, you make look back and, and see that you know only one out of ten survive, but then that one who did survive is like the strongest. So that may so then you may come to the conclusion that blasting you know people or rats with UV rays will make them healthier. You know, kind of what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. Okay. When in reality, the the truth is it just kills everybody who doesn't have <laughs> this like winning lottery set of genetics, right? right. Yeah. So. To some degree, there's almost that same principle with with Ukraine and Switzerland. I'm not sure if I'm making quite enough sense, but where the barrier to entry is so high that the only people who show up and kind of survive are the ones who are super dedicated and have kind of the physiology to say, I can run a 5K in zero degrees Mm -hmm. and then be about my day. Right. You know, go about my day just fine. Right. Yeah, I don't think there's a whole lot of color runs in Ukraine. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't think there's a whole lot of, lot of soap runs in, in Ukraine. What were the other ones there? You said Spain was... I mean, you can go right down the list. Ma- marathon Ukraine, was Spain. Ukraine, Switzerland, Russia. And then Spain was Marathon. So so Spain Marathon, I think, is a little weird. I mean, it, at least it doesn't cohere to the same same logic that the other ones do, right? Because Spain is a pretty well-to-do country. Um, you know, again, we could probably do a little bit, we could dig into that research and maybe maybe figure out why that is, or, or we could sort of cross-reference it with the number of, of, of marathons that are in Spain or something like that, um, but it's hard to say. Um, but yeah, so, so, so there's probably a different theory as to why that would be. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's pretty clear, to me at least, my, my theory I think is, is, is pretty sound that Ukraine and Russia, it's all about how there's like you said, not a lot of people taking selfies at the finish lines of those races. <laughs> so speaking of selfies, I think this is point number two to think about. The motives for participating in running are changing from being achievement-oriented mm-hmm. to being kind of psychological. Hey, this gives me better self-esteem. Mm-hmm. I feel better about myself. I feel more in yeah. control of my body when I'm a runner. Mm-hmm. Health. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, there's that one's self-explanatory. And social, right? Yeah. This is a good way to meet people. This is a good way to yeah. almost show myself off to other people if you're kind of into need some virtue signaling. Um to me, that also plays into the growth in Asia. So there was a, a very oh, fascinating, okay. um, and I'm kind of overgeneralizing here because that's kind of what we were doing in this discussion is we're, we're grasping at straws, so to speak. But there was a great article about the increase in, in marathon running in China in 2016 where they literally had to tell, like they literally had to make lanes for people taking selfies during the race. Like to to get out of the way of other runners, and because it was not a problem where it's like one person among the peach tree, it was literally droves of people taking selfies during the race. So mm-hmm. they literally had to say like, <laughs> almost the way we have on the highway, fast runners on the left or pass on the left, mm-hmm. cruise in the middle, mm-hmm. pull off on the right, mm-hmm. because it was so um, socially motivated, <laughs> and that can almost get into why the growth is in Asia because more and more we're we are getting the chance to share our experience of marathon running and running in general with others with social media. I mean, in the 90s, when you ran the Peachtree, no one even knew about it unless they opened up the newspaper mm-hmm. and you know, f- found someone on line 3,860 with their name on it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas today, you can really almost put it in people's faces to say, hey, look what I'm doing. I'm really enjoying this. You should join me, that kind of a thing. Oh, yeah. My social media was like everything on Facebook all day, July 4th, was people running the Peachtree Road Race. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, yeah, I think that's interesting. I, th- I think it's also, if you think about the growth in Asia and all that sort of thing, this is useful for us, of course, in this podcast to talk about the, the shape of the sport. But it's also the reason why they do it is to help businesses right. um, and, and to help race organizers and all that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's effectively market research, if you will. Um, and so if you think about the way that, say, Ironman, for example, um, has been reorganizing where their, their Kona qualifying spots are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they've been shifting a lot of them to Asia. That's kind of why, or at least that's one of the reasons why, um, because that's a growth market for them, and they want to try and get more Asians coming over to the Ironman World Championship um, in order to, to set down those roots in, in, in those countries, um, which, which makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, I, um, <clears throat> you know, I think circling back around to, to, to the initial thing that you said around um, you know, psychological benefits, social benefits, health benefits, all those sorts of things, as opposed to running competitively fast. I think that for me, as I've gotten older and as I've stayed in the sport, those sorts of things have mattered more to me. Um, and, and when I first started doing sports, they were kind of, or when I first started doing endurance sports, when I first became a runner, they were kind of secondary. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I still liked them. And, and, and I've noticed during the times when I've been working on advanced degrees or something else like that, and I haven't been able to, to run and train and plug into the endurance community, that I've missed competing, but I've also missed all that other stuff too. Mm-hmm. I've missed the community. I've missed being George the Runner. I've missed being fit. I've missed being able to go upstairs and not get out of breath. You know, I mean, things like that. Right. You know, um, and so I... I over time, I've come to appreciate what I initially considered, and still, frankly, consider secondary benefits. I've I've, I've come to, to consider those or appreciate the importance of those, um, and I certainly don't fault anybody for making those the primary motivators for them to get involved in endurance sports. And I would say, for me, my primary motivators used to be time. Now they're not, mm-hmm. and I don't and I don't know how much of that is a natural kind of aging progression. You know, right. kind of with age comes wisdom. Use a phrase I already used. You know, and how much of it is just the nature of almost plateauing with mm-hmm. with professions, even sure. plateauing, but almost realizing, hey, you kind of you've done what you can do, kind right. of a mentality. But it's pretty fascinating to think about because as my motives have changed, my approach to the sport hasn't changed as much as you would think. Mm-hmm. There maybe have been additional layers mm-hmm. to where now I want to always go for a run with a group or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, like the training hasn't necessarily changed. Mm-hmm. For example, my, mine has a little bit. And mm-hmm. I'm, you know, more than ten years older than you, um, and so, so like that shift that you're starting to talk about, I've, I've fully made that shift. I've had to, like, I can't, fo- I, I can still try and run as fast as I can, but I, but I can't really say I'm ever going to run as fast as I did 20 years ago. Yes. Um. Mm-hmm. Um. And so, <clears throat> I'm not going to do a 5K PR. I'm not going to do a half marathon PR. I can still do a marathon PR, but there's complex reasons behind that, as we've discussed before. <laughs> um. But, but the, the um, those secondary benefits, like I say, I, I can appreciate them much more now because they've had to become much more of a, a primary focus for me. Um, and I have to structure my training such that I can still continue to do it and still continue to reap those secondary benefits, even though I still consider them secondary because I still want to try and go fast, <laughs> you know, yeah. at least as fast as I can. Um, Absolutely. But I think it's interesting because where I notice the shift in my own kind of personal um, journey is now when I don't hit my time, I don't feel the same sense of disappointment I used mm-hmm. to. Yeah. Now, part of that is like in college, you had to, 
Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you may not come back the mes- next mm-hmm. semester. So, like, they're part of it's economical, <laughs> yeah. but um, there just a, is a definite sense of like I should call it detachment, almost, but like a peaceful acceptance yeah. of I'm going to run what I'm going to run, right. but I'm still going to be able to enjoy right. the community and the the race and kind of the, the joy of the journey, so to speak. Well, I mean, case in point for me is is the Peachy Road Race the other day. Yep, I, I ran the slowest Peachy Road Race I've run since 1991 um, on Thursday. <laughs> and and there's a lot of reasons for that um, uh, that I don't need to bother to get into. But I still kind of feel like overall, hey, it was a good day. Got to hang out with some people at the start. Got to hang out with some people at the finish. Um, you know, I put in a good effort, um, even though you know I didn't really run all that fast. Um, and uh, and so I'm fine with it. Um, Twenty years ago, I would have said, "Wow, that sucked. Yeah, that was not a good day." Um, despite hanging out with other people, despite getting my glass, despite getting to, to, you know, ride back on Marta with one of the athletes that I coach. I mean, it's, it's despite all of those things, I would have been like, this was not a good day because I didn't run very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't feel that way about it. Yeah. Um, I'll still sign up for it again. You know? Um, all right. Do we want to do this last piece real quick? Last piece. All right. Do we have time here to, to, to knock it out and still see part of the, uh, the world cup final? Yes. Just a little bit. All and, right. We'll probably also bring back more thoughts on this state of running, so yeah, you know, take some means, time yeah. to think about it. I'll I'll send you the link and right on. Um, there's some interesting stuff. Like to me, it's fascinating to see how different. Speaking of the World Cup, how different countries, mm. the women have just as many runners. There's just as many female runners as male. Yeah. But then you see some countries like Japan, Switzerland, India, Italy, make up less than twenty percent of the competitors. Yeah. Japan, I'd be surprised by that. India, I'm not so surprised. Japan, right. I am surprised by that. Uh, very interesting. Very good. Um, uh, all right, last thing we're going to talk about real quick here is is Boston qualifying times. And we can just say this real quick. Um, and, and it might be a degree to which we're kind of kind of saying, hey, I was wrong about this. Um, but we'll see. This is sort of a preview of a conversation we're going to have in September after Boston signups have taken place for 2020. Um, but real quickly to recap, many of you will recall, we've talked about this before, um, the Boston Athletic Association, the organization that runs the Boston Marathon, um, modified the... 2020 Boston qualifying times. They basically cut five minutes off across the board. Um, and you and I had talked about how, well, um, that means that probably most people who hit the qualifying time this year are going to actually get into the race. In years past, as, as you all know, and we've talked about before, you would hit the qualifying time, but you wouldn't necessarily get in. You had to be one of the fastest people who also hit the qualifying time. And and for the 2019 race, you had to actually have run four minutes and 52 seconds faster than the qualifying time in your age group. They cut five minutes off of all the qualifying times for 2020, so that would seem to suggest that everybody who runs under the qualifying time would, in fact, make it into the race. However, um, so far this year, in some of the bigger qualifying races in the first half of 2019, um, they, those races have produced nearly the same number of qualifiers as they produced in 2018, even though the times are now five minutes faster. So case in point, um, more people qualify for the Boston Marathon at what marathon? Do you know? No, so, I don't know. It's a little bit of a trick question. At the Boston Marathon. Oh, my gosh. I should have <laughs> known that. Uh, I actually knew that um, one. That was so, bad. So, so uh, this year at the Boston Marathon, 8,883 people qualified this year, and last year it was 9,254. And so there's only about a dip of 400 people 
in the quali- miss the qualifying standard, even though the qualifying standard is now five minutes faster. At Grandma's Marathon, there was 1,072 this year, and there was 1,117 last year. So that's only, what, about 45 fewer people. Yep. Right? Um, Houston Marathon had 829 this year and only had 800 last year. So even though the qualifying times are faster for 2020, they actually had more qualifiers this year than they did last year at the the Houston Marathon. Uh, same thing was true at the Revel Mountain Charleston Marathon, which is in Las Vegas. They had 393 last year, uh, and they had 401 this year. Uh, the Eugene Marathon had 358 this year. They had 378 last year. But again, the numbers are pretty close. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not true across the board. Uh, the LA Marathon had 30% fewer qualifiers than they did last year. The New York City Marathon had 11% fewer qualifiers than they did last year. Um, but generally speaking, you have a lot of people who saw the new qualifying standards, adjusted their goals, and have run that fast. Um, um, so, bottom line, and this is coming from Runner's World, by the way. Some of you all probably saw this article on Runner's World. Um, with the 2019 data available for 12 of the 30 largest Boston feeder races, 14,118, 188 runners have hit the times they needed for 2020. From those same races in 2018, 15,255 had hit the time. So 14,188 versus 15,255. Over those 12 races, the tougher standards reduced the pool of qualified runners by only 7%. That's nothing. So so it's it's, it's pretty negligible. Given that, that 7,000 people didn't get in last year who had made the qualifying time and, and still didn't get in, if you reduce that 7,000 by 7%, that's that's still thousands upon thousands of people that aren't getting in. So, if you got your qualifying time, I had said in, in, in podcasts past that, oh, no, everybody who makes qualifying time this year is probably going to make it. There's probably going to be people who, who don't make it again this year. It's not going to be four minutes and 52 seconds, but I think it is going to be maybe a minute um, under the qualifying times that people are going to have to run in order to actually be able to get into the race after having run the qualifying time. So, We'll circle back around in September and see. Yeah, and it kind of plays into uh, Alex Hutchinson's kind of thesis, so to speak, that the the mind and body are connected, right? If you know you have to run a three-hour marathon to qualify, Mm -hmm. it makes sense that we have a large kind of cohort of people clumped together at 259, so to speak, right? And if you... If we push it back to 305, we probably have a large clump of people run 304. And part of it could be physiological, right? If you think you have to run a 304, all of your gold marathon... um, pace runs are going to be at 304 pace for example but a lot of it's probably just mental too um and knowing this is what i have to do Mm -hmm. to 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 break this this record so to speak and it's fascinating because every time i'm in a marathon i always think to myself how much easier would it be to run like two minutes slower and the answer is like honestly not really (laughs) i mean for real but if you ran like a 239 at at flying pig do you think you would have finished and gone wow that was significantly easier than if yeah, i no. had pr'd of course not. it's not so then yeah. so then you almost just think well i should just go for the gold every mile and mm-hmm. kind of see what happens so to speak mm-hmm. and, and see kind of how it turns out but you know for a lot of people they need that edge of three flat 305 what you know whatever yeah. it is that yeah. that milestone to reach um so it's pretty fascinating stuff and to your point and kind of to i think you know alex hutchinson's point with his book it's it's not so much about I am running to my limit and that limit happens to be, you know, two fifty nine. Yeah, happens to be exactly two fifty nine or it happens to be three flat. We gear our mind up to say I will give everything I can to run this time. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the data show that. Right. Um. You know, we've talked on this podcast before, and it's about especially how, pronounced with men too. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and, and I think it's interesting, too, dovetailing back to what you said about people are now more socially motivated. Good point. Um, and I wonder if, if that kind of plays into it as well. But but no, the data show, when, and we talked about the, this data on this podcast before, that when you look at all marathon finishers going back to literally the 1970s, millions upon millions of people, if you graph out the marathon finish times, there are clusters at every five minutes, mm-hmm. and the clusters are bigger at every 10 minutes, and they're even bigger at every 30 minutes, and they're largest right at the hour marks. Right. And so, which suggests that people are saying, I want to run under three hours, and they're getting just under three hours, right? Um, and so, if people, if people by and large, focus on trying to run a particular time, they're going to be able to run that particular time. Within reason, of course. Like, I can't say, oh, I want to run under two hours and get there. <laughs> um, but, but... But if people focus on on trying to break certain barriers, be it a Boston qualifying barrier or an hour barrier or something else like that, they're they're going to be able to do it. I thought it would take a little bit longer for people to adjust. I think that's the big surprise you and I have had over the past yeah, few since weeks, we read few this months, article. Yeah. is that I thought it would be a year of adjusting your training right, to right. say, all right, now my goal marathon pace runs are going to be at this time instead of this right. time. And it, it seems like it's it's almost like switching a flip. Uh, uh, flipping a switch. switch sorry my mistake yeah, um no, i get into the podcast here so it's it's going to be interesting to see and it's it, it really does have a lot tell us a lot about how we come to the race times that we do and to the prs that we do absolutely absolutely i totally agree um all right man i think that covers us let's go watch some soccer <laughs> sounds good <laughs> right on thanks for joining us everybody uh we'll see you next time on the most pleasant is awesome podcast And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash performance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.